Welcome to Before They Change the World, where we explore the minds and ideas of inspiring individuals working on impactful projects before they change the world. This first ever episode is hosted by me, Junu, and I will be interviewing my co-host and friend, David Alonso, who is a master's student in robotics with interesting hobbies such as photography, videography, and music production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Before They Change the World. Today, we have the guest, David Alonso. Welcome, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So, David, can you tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, and what you like to do in your free time? Yeah. So, currently, I'm a master student of robotics at ETH Zurich, um, which is a university in Europe <laughs> that you know very well. And I came here about two years ago after doing my bachelor at TU Delft, which is a university in the Netherlands where I did aerospace. And so that's what I'm dedicating most of my time to. I actually have uh, an exam next week um, cool. in my spare time, which right now I don't have much of. I like to do a lot of different things. So they can be personal projects in the technical area that I'm studying in. So I uh, experiment with the things that I'm learning. So for instance, I'm currently very fascinated with a lot of the concepts that I'm learning about in artificial intelligence. So I do like background research of stuff. I, I try to re-implement things or I try to build an application with a certain technology. I also like to build apps as I alluded to. And then I do a bunch of things outside of academics, such as music production, singing, and a lot of sports. And also recently photography and uh, a YouTube channel. And a podcast, <laughs> which coincidentally is also called Before They Change the World. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you guys uh, copied us or we copied you. <laughs> well, cool. So, all right. We can dive into your bachelor's and also your side projects. Those mm -hmm. are the upcoming questions. But first of all, what is your daily routine? Okay. Yeah. My daily routine. Even though I like to say that not, no two days are the same because they aren't. There is some structure to my day. And I would say I start, so I would say 90% of my days don't start with an alarm. I really, right now I don't have to be anywhere in the morning because I'm studying. I'm, I'm not working at a company. I don't have meetings scheduled in the morning or something. So uh, usually I go to bed at a reasonable time and then I wake up whenever I, I wake up I usually I, after eight hours of sleep or something like that to me it's really important to to get enough rest mm -hmm. and uh, then depending on how i'm feeling how how excited i am to get out of bed you know if i have like sometimes i wake up and i have an immediate thought or something i want to write down or something i want to start working on immediately mm -hmm. um if that's the case then i'll get out of my bed immediately and go straight to my desk otherwise i will probably read for or anywhere between 30 and, and one hour, uh, 30 minutes and one hour. So I have a Kindle next to my bed. Another thing that starts with the day before is that I shut off my phone and put it in a somewhere. So I never check my phone in the morning. I always uh, check my phone. Well, I don't know. Usually I aim to check my phone when I have breakfast, which is at 12 mm -hmm. or one. So I fast during the morning. And yeah, the goal is really to to keep my morning completely free of any distractions, any notifications, any social media, any news, and also to not have breakfast really helps clear my mind or just be in a really focused state. And so 
I go then between the time that I leave my bed and 12. Uh, I, I do whatever I, I, I need to be doing. Usually it's, it's work, um, coding, studying, or anything else. And then I'll have breakfast. And after that, I'll usually continue. So I'm working from uh, home most days. So I'll really live in a very small space, which is my room. I'll do everything in there. And then I'll do exercise in the evening. So sometimes it's in, at midday, but usually in the evenings, I'll either do like swimming lessons um, or a cycle on my bike trainer, which I have at home or go for a run. So right now I'm preparing for a triathlon. So sport is quite a, 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 an important part of my routine. Mm -hmm. I train every day, mm -hmm. uh, running, cycling or swimming. Uh, those are the three elements of the triathlon. And then I'll have dinner at some point, call my girlfriend at the end of the day. That's also a very repetitive thing uh, mm -hmm. that I do. And aside from that, I don't think there's something that I do very regularly. So yeah, <laughs> that's my routine. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. So, and your girlfriend is at Netherlands. Yeah. Right? How did you know that? Oh, I did some <laughs> research on you, you know, and uh, uh, she's doing some swimming. Very cool. Yes. Very cool so, yeah. So my girlfriend is uh, studying architecture in the Netherlands mm -hmm. and we met in Delft when I was living in a student room and she was living next to me, basically. Oh. Uh, she was my neighbor. We met, things went from there and yeah, she does synchronized swimming. She really likes the fact that I'm doing a lot more swimming practice right now. And yeah. yeah. That's very sick. Oh yeah. And another thing is yes. that she's going to come to Zurich. So she's graduating now mm -hmm. uh, from architecture. She actually had like one of her final presentations last week. And the plan is that she will find a job in Zurich and then we'll move in together somewhere here yeah. in the city. Nice. And I'm excited for that. That's great. Yeah. Well, Cool. So <clears throat> regarding your hobbies, you know, that's the first thing I notice when I just research about you, you just have so many hobbies and you're doing it at a pretty professional level. For example, your pixels of David uh -huh. uh, photography and also your YouTube channel, which is, has a considerable amount of subscribers. But also you have a music production and you have a Spotify account, mm -hmm. um, I mean the artist account. And I just wanted to ask, like, you seem like you're so driven in so many areas. And where do you find motivation to actually do these at a level that's not just like any hobbyist, but a bit more professional and really put effort in like creating websites and what drives you in that front? So. I think the motivation really comes from inspiration from other people. So usually for all these things that I've done and, you know, you've mentioned a few of them, but there's like so many others, you know, I was at some point obsessed with tennis, chess, and just countless of others. It's, I think most, most of the time there's always a role model there that I'm really looking up to that. I just think about a lot that I just stalk online. I just, look at all their videos that I can find on YouTube. So for music production, at some point it was Hans Zimmer and Charlie Puth. I would just, if there was an interview uh, with them on YouTube, I was, I would look at it. I would analyze, I would see how they think. I would try to understand how for Charlie Puth, for instance, how, like, how do they actually sound when without processing, how do they process their, their vocals? 
what was their career path like, all of these things. And, and then that, so I have usually, a, with all these things, I have a period where I'm really obsessed with that activity. Mm-hmm. Then it kind of goes down a bit. And then I usually transition to something else. And, and for some of these hobbies, so all the hobbies that I've had, it, it, so the, the activity kind of drops off, but it never really goes away. Because I cannot manage 10 hobbies at a time, but usually three or four. And sometimes I come back to a hobby that I used to have in the past. And what drives me to do them at a high level, I think. So with many things, the the more you get into something, the more you appreciate that activity. And you realize that there's huge worlds behind that thing that you used to call a hobby. You realize that for some people, it's their whole life. And you realize that it's just like like for music or for for chess you know some people so a person that doesn't play chess they might think oh this is just a board with some pieces and you're moving them around like really what's the point what what are you doing here right. but then you get into chess and you realize <laughs> how incredibly complex the game can be how deep some of the ideas can be and then you start seeing people like Magnus Carlsen who's the world champion and you see him play blindfold against like 10 boards simultaneously and you think how is he doing that and then you think he he's i mean he's amazing but he's also a human and i'm also a human right so what's what's the fundamental i'm not fundamentally limited to any of what he's doing and that that inspiration then drives me to like practice 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 and to a point that that i really see like the the improvements kind of plateau and you get into marginal gains but at the beginning it's really like getting to that 80 percent level of masterfulness actually takes 20 percent of the effort that's the 80 20 rule mm-hmm. uh, it's maybe not exact but it's roughly like that so that's that's the benefit of trying a lot of different things and then being obsessed with them for a while until you reach like an 80 percent level of mastery or something like that mm-hmm. because it's it's really I, I find it incredibly satisfying to see that growth in myself that I look back two months ago and I say like, wow, I, I really wasn't able to do what I'm able to do now. Yeah, that's really what drives me. And yeah, I, if you have any other questions about this, let me know. I love talking about my hobbies. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, it's really interesting that you mentioned 80-20 mm-hmm. Pareto. Yeah, Pareto, yeah. Right? Pareto principle. And basically then for chess, let's say. Mm-hmm. Chess was my rolling example. You practice, practice, practice until you achieve certain level above average, I guess. Yeah. Like, like for chess, it was, I was at some point, so I started playing chess at 18. I started with this obsession at 18, Mm -hmm. usually all grandmasters, you know, that reach top world level, they started like age 10. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say that you can't learn at some point when you're close to being an adult, but yeah, I started like that. And after two years of playing a lot of chess online, I was top, I think 90, 90, like 95 or something on chess.com. So, so in the top 5% of like all chess.com users, and there's still a huge difference between me and a grandmaster, but again, this is the, the marginal improvements thing that if I wanted to go from top 5% to top 1%, I probably have to dedicate. Yeah, t- 10 times the amount of time that I did. But with like that 20% time investment that a master would have, 
I still manage to, you know, be at a level where if I meet someone on the street, I'm probably uh, gonna be better. <laughs> and you just do you have? A, I mean, when you tackle chess, like, do you read a book about it? Do you just practice? Mm. How do you yeah, I, so I try many different approaches to to learn. So very often, I'm not only focused on the the learning of the skill, but also the method of learning. So trying to find new ways of learning things. I'm always on the scout for, you know, YouTube channels that can teach me a thing or two, or just generally resources. So for chess, I did experiment with books. So I bought like one book on openings, but I think that wasn't very useful in the end. The thing that made me the, gave me the most improvements were online chess, right? Because that pairs you with people that are the same level as you puzzles as well for tactics mm -hmm. and then I followed a bunch of YouTube channels like the chess.com YouTube channel but also a bunch of other independent YouTubers that play chess online just to like international masters or grandmasters that comment on their chess playing so that you get an insight into how they think mm -hmm. and yeah I remember I was just so obsessed I would play I don't know how many I think on chess.com I've played like close to 5,000 games each game is like around 10 minutes on average or yeah something like that so <laughs> you yeah. can start to calculate how much time <laughs> that is and that's excluding you know all the puzzles that i play on my phone whenever i was on the bus or something and all the meals that i spent in front of my computer like watching professionals play chess or things like that yeah i was really obsessed but now now I'm, i've moved on from chess i still love playing chess but not to that that level mm -hmm. and what's your chess.com id david ort i think okay. david o o r t yeah. if you're also a chess player yeah make sure you can you look it up yeah, count out. yeah. <laughs> that's very cool so you know continuing on your hobbies you know you said you cannot handle 10 hobbies at once mm -hmm. but still i feel like you're handling a lot of hobbies at once <laughs> in normal people's standards because mm -hmm. you said you put a lot of effort in but how do you find time to do them so let's see I, I i don't think i have like a magical strategy for time management or that i'm like exceptionally fast at learning things i, I think i think it, I want to attribute maybe the fact that you think that I do a lot of things to to some of the things I have like in my routine where for instance I, I don't use my phone for a big part of my day and things like that so I I'm really mindful of where my time is going uh, I hate procrastination and I hate and finishing a day and, and, and feeling like I haven't done anything and, and this also goes for for weekends so I am constantly trying to, to do projects, trying to make progress on different things. And maybe one thing is that if you're, if you're, I don't know, studying or something and you have many different hobbies, then, um, what feels like a distraction, like, oh, I'm gonna finish this song or I'm gonna, I don't know, think about podcast ideas or, oh, a video idea for my YouTube channel just came up. feels like a distraction, but it's actually making progress towards one of my other hobbies. Okay. So. Yeah, even your breaks are actually, you know, things that you're investing into other parts of your life, mm -hmm. not just like, oh, I'm going to take a break and mindlessly 
scroll Twitter or Instagram or something. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to your bachelor's actually, because sure. you did some cool projects there. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us talk to us about this project that you led and mm. you, the team you founded? Yeah. Uh, so that team is called Talaria. It no longer is running. I think it has a website, but but I think that that team it was a student team. So when most of the students in the team graduated, then it was kind of put on halt. But it's the project originated with the announcement of the GoFly competition, which was sponsored by Boeing. And the challenge there was to build a personal flying machine. And it was so th this is in a very abstract sense, but they put a lot of constraints on what this device should do and uh, shouldn't do. So they put some some requirements on the endurance or so the range of the device, how much flight time it needed to have the maximum dimension of the device. So it was something like 2.6 meters or something. It had to be really a personal flying device, very tiny. 2.6 meters height. 2.6 meters in any, like from any point to any point in the device, the maximum distance from any point to any point. Mm -hmm. And then also noise requirements, which is, you know, directly competing with the, the dimension. Right. If you have if you have a rotor, so I'm going on a tangent here a bit, but if you have a rotor, the and you have to carry a specific weight, which was also a requirement, like the payload has to be 90 kilograms of a person. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a fixed weight and you have a, a rotor, you have to basically lift that weight. You'll have a load that the rotor has to has to take. The smaller you make the rotor, the higher the disc loading, which means how many newtons of force each square meter of that rotor has to carry. Mm -hmm. And usually that directly correlates with the rotational frequency of that rotor and the noise levels. Mm -hmm. So they want us to make something very small and very low noise. And that that's, I think, was the, the key challenge of the competition. And um, so if you think of something compact, right, like a jetpack, mm -hmm. that's crazy noisy. So nobody could yes. have a jetpack. Right. That, that's, that was just way above the, the noise requirements. Anyway, we came up with this kind of concept. It was a coaxial mini helicopter, I guess you could call it. If you want to picture it in your mind, it was coaxial means that you have two rotors, one on top of each other, one on top of the other, and they rotate in opposite directions to cancel out the, the torque, mm -hmm. the yawing torque that they put on the, on the frame mm -hmm. of the aircraft. And the person would be under the rotors in kind of like a, like a motorbike position. So you, the person would have like the battery pack under him, he would be in like this motorbike position. And then there would be like a few, yeah, a frame that would be holding the, the hub and the electric motor that would drive these two coaxial rotors. And, and yeah, so we, we started this team, like I was in my second year of my aerospace bachelors. When we found out about this competition, me and, an, and another student in the class, we were in, I remember in a lecture and we were speaking about this and then this other guy he got contacted by two other students that have that had heard about the competition as well they were in in the uh, i think earth sciences faculty so very different but they were very interested in 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 starting a team so we we got together we met up and very quickly you know because we were in this aerospace bubble it was very easy to recruit people 
to just say to our classmates, yo, look at, look at this project, it's going to be so sick. It's sponsored by Boeing, you know, like, uh, I don't know what the price was, but very high. Uh, and so we, we started brainstorming the initial concepts. We started growing the team and then very early in the project, we actually became a dream team of TU Delft, which was, which was, it's like a very nice status to have because you have access to the dream hall, which is this amazing building in the center of campus where there's a lot of other students building things like, like Dare's building a, a, a rocket that's like 16 meters long or something like that. Wow. And there's a, an electric motorbike, electric or human powered submarine, human powered bike that can go 140 kilometers an hour because it has this uh, super aerodynamic shell. You have the solar team, you have the Formula One team similar to AMZ or DTH, mm -hmm. uh, like Delft Hyperloop, right? So you have all these amazing projects and it, it's like all in this, in this hall. It's so inspiring. Like you, you, you just see everyone's workshops next to each other. You have the offices upstairs the machines. Yeah, it's, it was a great environment to be in. So yeah, we, we joined as a dream team. Then we submitted for phase one, which was the first part of the competition. We unfortunately did not win that phase, but we were able to continue to the next phase. And that's what we did. But at that time, around that time, I had to leave for my minor, which was a DTH. Mm -hmm. And then I basically gave, gave the, the chief engineer role to one of my other teammates who was yeah one of the best engineers in the team. Uh, so yeah, my, my role, as, a, as you can probably guess, was chief engineer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that basically meant managing the, the other chief of departments. So we had like, I think it was like structures, propulsion, there's, there's others, of course, structures, propulsion, the, the, I think the electrical systems, mm -hmm. um, actually those might be it. I'm thinking of the other departments because I know there were more chiefs of departments. Like maybe propulsion was like split up into aerodynamics and something else. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, managing those and then trying to come up with with the uh, with the concepts that we would be submitting for the competition and then analyzing those concepts, coming up with an initial prototype. Yeah, um, managing that next to my studies. That was yeah, and and. I learned so many things because it wasn't just on the technical side. It was very challenging because we had to learn all about uh, the details of building such a machine and, and, you know, modeling rotors. How do you even design such a thing? Mm -hmm. How do you model the, the interaction of the aerodynamics between the two rotors? How do you calculate the noise for this system? All these things we had to learn. How, what, like, do we need an extra device to compensate for yaw? How do we have full control in flight? How do we... Oh yeah, of course, controls was another team, right? In the, like, how do we control this device? How mm -hmm. do we allow it to take off, to, to go through turns, which was one of the challenges, mm -hmm. uh, to get to this maximum speed, um, all these open questions. And we had to talk to members of the faculty at TU Delft. Some of them also didn't have an idea because it was such a novel, novel field, urban air mobility. That's kind of like the, the, the field. And, and then on a managerial level, I also learned a lot because the team grew quickly to like 40 or even more students mm -hmm. because there was so much motivation or so much, I don't know, it was very easy to sell the project. It was so cool, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we got people from all different faculties. We got people from industrial design that were making cool sketches of the concepts and coming up with like logos and branding. We were also, you know, reaching out to companies like Lilium, who uh, like one of my dream companies. And they actually ended up sponsoring us. Oh. Um, 
Yeah, it was uh, an amazing adventure. And mm -hmm. that also told me I was putting in, you know, sometimes, yeah, 40, 60 hours into Talaria in a week and then still doing studies on the side. And I kind of realized this Parkinson's law of work fills the time available for it that I could have just done, focused on just doing my study and nothing else. Mm -hmm. But I probably would have procrastinated or been less efficient about how I was spending my time. And I still, by putting other things in my schedule, I basically squeezed the time that I was able to study in, but I still managed to get good grades in my second year. So, so that, that's a concept that I've like really kept up that if, that unless I'm really feeling like I can't keep something up, I'm going to try to stack as many things as I can in my schedule, because then that'll mean that I'll be efficient in how I, how I handle them. Okay. Yeah. It's called Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law. Yeah. Parkinson's yeah. Law. Look it up. Okay. It's cool. Yeah. Listeners, you know, <laughs> you know what to look for now. <laughs> Parkinson's law. Cool. So we're approaching the end of the podcast, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But yeah. I have some very cool questions you ask. Yeah. And it's a rapid fire. You get okay. one minute to one minute and a half max. Okay, I'll try with your question. Sure. So the first question is, if you had a million dollars, what would you do? <laughs> oh, I love that question. <laughs> I would think of ways I could invest that in myself or in other cool projects, startups. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I know it's not very specific, but yeah, at the moment it's there, there would be so many, so many things that I could think of. So there's so many cool projects, right? Even in the student projects, I was at ETH or around ETH in the Zurich area that I, I would love to, to, to contribute to, but there's also many things that I want to do myself, you know, so like, and, and with money, you can just accelerate the process of those things. So if. I would be able to, to, for instance, join photography tours to make connections in this space, to learn about very accomplished photographers or visit very amazing places. I would be able to invest in, you know, I would be able to do things like, oh, organizing a community of musicians in Zurich and, and, and make like professional music, like create a studio, invite some of the people that I know in Zurich that are very talented at making music. And yeah, and then there's a bunch of like projects that I have in mind or applications where I, with money, you can, you can always accelerate, you know, the, the user base, the growth of the user base. You can invest in having, for instance, people edit my YouTube videos so that I can only focus on the creation part and I can generate a lot more value in that way. There's just so many, so many things like this. Yeah. So you're not the type who wants to go to. Bahamas and just relax and chill and <laughs> maybe that's just like 2000 if you do a short trip uh, mm -hmm. a million well we can buy an <laughs> island no okay no I would not do that I no. would not do that no. Mm -hmm. no definitely not I would definitely invest it in myself or or people around me that I or projects that I really believe in mm -hmm. there's just nothing better than seeing yourself improve or getting new opportunities for yourself and an island doesn't really give you that yeah mm -hmm. second and the last question yeah. is <clears throat> what other field that you have never had done anything with mm. your any new field that you would want to explore next yeah so so 
Cooking is one where I do very much the basics <laughs> to survive, but I haven't really gotten into cooking in the way that some people around me or my parents are, where they, you know, spend hours thinking about, oh, a recipe that they want to make for lunch and they go and buy specific ingredients and they, they spend four hours cooking something. I, I haven't reached that level of obsession, but I could easily see myself getting into that. Another thing is theater. I used to do that in primary school. So I don't know if I would count that as something that I've done in the past. I haven't really done it on a big scale, like with a, a real audience. And that's something that I would love to explore as well. And I actually enrolled as a as an extra for the Zurich Opera House. So wow. I could get, you know, called for an audition at some point. And we'll see. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, th those are two examples. And uh, there's so many, like paragliding, for instance. That's something that you're into and that you could easily, like, totally inspire me to do. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, I'll be waiting until you get to by the Opera House. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. <laughs> well, so thank you, David, for coming on our podcast. And if you want to plug your website or any social mm. media feed, feel free to do so. <laughs> so I have my website is david-alonzo.com. Mm -hmm. And there you can basically find links to everything, to all my YouTube channels, to my photography stuff, to my music stuff. I think that's really like my, it's meant to be the entry point to everything that I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again and yeah. hope to have you as a guest next time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to share this podcast with anyone interested in entrepreneurship, university student life, and the rising minds and technologies of the future before they change the world. <laughs>